Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for your time listening to the Emotional Optimism Podcast. I appreciate you all more than you can ever imagine. All right. On this episode, gosh, I'm so excited for this one. I get to speak to my good friend and skateboarding buddy, Gen Xer, Lars Schmidt. Lars has written a best-selling book called Redefining HR, which really speaks to what we need to do today, tomorrow, and in years to come to transform our people and our teams to drive better business results. And more than that, literally just to pay attention to our people. What is needed today to transform the working world? I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed speaking to Lars. I'm yep. so happy you're here, Lars. Thank you so much for joining me. I've been wanting to jam with you. Like, I want to jam with you every day, but I've been wanting to jam yeah, with likewise. you for a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, totally. Um, well, listen, congratulations on your book. I'm loving it. It's Thank great. You. It's like, it's enormous because of all the case studies in here. Yeah, you know, it's really like, when I set out to write the book, it was really important that it didn't center on me. Um, and what I mean by that is like, I, I, a lot of the work that I do, I, I'm kind of the guide, I'm like the Sherpa, the architect, I'm the one that kind of connects the dots. But um, I'm not a practitioner, I haven't sat in, in your seat in seven years now, since I've been a, you know, consultant. And so what I didn't want to do is write a book that was another... Um, you know, analyst take or pundit take on the field of HR, who that's very detached from the actual people doing the work. Um, I wanted to really center it around them and kind of look at my role as almost like a, uh, you know, a DJ of kind of pulling these stories together uh, in quotes and personal essays and anecdotes um, to really bring the ideas to life. So it was really important to me that it wasn't just, hey, here's what I think about X, Y, or Z. It's like, sure, I'm, I'm framing this, but let me actually bring it to life with these case studies and examples, uh, so that readers, it was relatable to people in the seat doing the work. That was really important. Yeah, and it and it works. It reads like that too. But let's start. Let's like go back in time for a second. Yeah. Because like, I, I don't even. I, I want to know about your career. But like, five years old. Who were you? Where were you? What were you like? Yeah, five years old. I was. Uh, I was a rambunctious little kid uh, moving with my family from Connecticut to South Florida. Uh, where I grew up. So um, very, uh, you know, I loved to climb. I was, uh, I was athletic, but not, you know, in a, like I was an ace at all the sports. Like I love to climb. I love to be active. Um, I got into skateboarding pretty young in Florida. Um, you know, that was, I, you know, kind of grew up uh, on that. A little bit of surfing, um, played some sports, but uh, yeah, I was just an active kid. I love to make people laugh. Um, I was probably a, uh, uh, like to be the center of attention, even as a little kid. I, my mom you know, gave me a hard time because she said, "But I, when I was a little kid, I think I was five. My hair was blonde, uh, and then it became brown. And I was, uh, I was disappointed that I might not be able to be a movie star." <laughs> <laughs> my mom, my mom gave me grief about that, which I deserve. It's looking back, it's funny, but uh, but yeah, I was, uh, you know, I, I like to kind of, you know, get get people to laugh. I like to entertain people, and uh, found ways to try to do that. I love it. I love it. And so, okay, South Florida, junior high, high school, then, yeah. you know, you, you, did you go to college? Yep. Yeah. And what, what did you study? And like, why'd you pick the school you went to? And, and Yeah. You know, I, I, so I went to Florida State. I grew up in Florida. Uh, Florida State was actually the only college I applied to. I was just, uh, you know, like a lot of, you know, Florida people I assume, like, we're very passionate about football. I've always been a huge FSU uh, football fan. And so I knew that's where I wanted to go. And I didn't bother applying anywhere else. And 
Um, I got in and I studied uh, marketing and international business. Uh, it was my focus. So, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do with that. I thought uh, I thought at the time it would probably be advertising. Actually, I thought I assumed I'd be getting into advertising with a marketing background, and uh, you know that interested me. But uh, the only thing that I knew was that I wanted to move to LA. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, interestingly enough, the only, uh, we had a career fair in my senior year, actually my, my fifth year, I was a double major, so I stayed for five years, that's my excuse. Uh, but uh, we, there's one company that came on campus that had an office in LA, uh, and they happened to be a technical recruiting firm. So I had no idea what that was, I had no idea what that meant, but I was like, but this can get me to LA, so I should probably talk to them. Uh, and I did and hit it off with the team. And um, yeah, next thing I knew, I was uh, moving to New York for six months for a training program that they had and then uh, relocating to L.A. Wow. All right. And, and what year was this? Or years? Uh, this was in uh, 98. I graduated. Yeah. I mean, the tech recruiting in L.A. And I mean, I was I mean, in San Francisco. Then. It was. Yeah. That was the that was the ship. That's where that it was, was yeah, dot com one point oh. Yeah. I mean, it was uh it was yeah. crazy. We, we worked with a lot of the Ideal Labs companies. Um oh, you wow. know, uh, so we yeah, I mean everybody Java was the hot language. Um, you know, we had companies, eToys was one of our clients. Uh, I distinctly remember this. They they built their whole site in object-oriented Perl, which is really rare. So they're desperate for Perl developers at a time when everybody's been in Java. And they were so desperate, they would literally hire people and relocate them and their families off a of phone screen. And wow. it was just crazy. Like never met them, never yeah. like, oh yeah, you, you, you know, you passed our coding test. Right, right, They'll right. Fly you out and give you a ton of money and equity. Oh, and it was yeah. just, it was crazy. Those were the, I mean, the wild, wild, wild west. Like <laughs> yeah. big, big, big time. Wow. And so did recruiting come easy to you because you're, you're just like, and naturally just like jovial guy. You're really easy to get along with. Like, relationships had like what was that like yeah i think so like i think I, i'm able to build rapport um pretty quickly and and i'm, I'm you know a fairly easy communicator um and so i think that that allowed me to kind of um make connections i mean as, as you know like at that time any there's agencies everywhere and because there's so much money in in recruiting like they would hire anybody off the street with no training and be like here's a phone you know right. either you sink or you swim and i was really fortunate that the company i joined um pencom systems was all about relationship-based recruiting like they they that was the fundamental core of everything they did so they trained us you know they, they flew us to new york they put us up in new york uh you know for wow. six months and trained us in technology and wow. so by the time we actually got to our offices and we were recruiting yeah, I had a general idea of like object-oriented programming and frameworks, and I certainly wasn't a coder, never would uh, be able to convince anybody that I was. But, you know, if I if I was having a conversation with somebody and asking them about like, what are they working on? What kind of code are they writing? What tools are they using? I knew enough that I could, I could have that conversation in a way that wasn't just like, oh, so you like Java, like what's your favorite <laughs> coffee, you know? So I think those two things coupled together allowed me to be pretty successful. Yeah, that's so awesome because, I mean, recruiting even back back then and sometimes even now is so transactional and so like yeah. fill, 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 fill. That's like, who are you again? Are you John or are you Jackie? I don't even know who I'm talking to anymore, but right. that's awesome. That's so awesome. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you had just enough, what do they say, just enough to be dangerous? Like maybe you're just shy of dangerous, but you're just shy of dangerous. But you know, I'm like I've I've always been uh, curious about technology. Like I'm a I'm a tech nerd myself. So when we got to do the training, I was like, ooh, I get to do this. Like this is really cool. Like I'm really yeah. good. like well, some people were probably like, oh, you know, I got to sit in the classroom again. I was like, no, this is great because I you know I knew I would never be a 
coder, but I knew that if I really wanted to be doing technical recruiting, I had to have at least a, a, a near dangerous level of understanding. So I didn't sound like a, a, a complete, you know, uh, newbie yeah. on the phone and just get rushed off the phone because these people are getting hammered calls by recruiters left and right. Yeah. Wow. So where were you based? Where was this? Uh, this was in LA. So yeah, the office I was in, it was in uh, West Hollywood. Uh, and I lived in, uh, in, you know, in Redondo Beach and then um, Santa Monica in West LA most of the time I was there. Yeah. I mean, you were in the heart, you were in the heart of it, Redondo Beach. I mean, come on. And I mean, surf yeah. skate city, like those years were crazy. Now, That's now, <laughs> you know, to get a bungalow now, it's like eight figures, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild, but it was fun. I mean, you know, my tw- early twenties, yeah. uh, you know, moving out there, I had a good group of friends. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a, LA was a fun place to be at that point. Yeah, for sure. So recruiting, technical recruiting got you until when, like how long, how far did you go? How long did you go? Yeah. So we, um, you know, we lived and died with .com in that agency. So, uh, when the bubble burst, uh, so did many of our jobs and, uh, I, I got let go. It was about my first time uh, being let go. It was a third round of layoffs. Uh, but luckily for me, I was just about to close a deal with one of my clients um, who just got a big round of funding from Kleiner Perkins to basically revamp their business model. And so, you know, five minutes after I got the notification that I was being laid off, I, I you know, called my, my, you know, at that point we were friendly and I was like, hey, uh, good news and bad news. You know, the bad news is uh, I've been let go from Pencom. Um, you know, we had a reduction. I'm not going to be there. Um, so I can't help you through Pencom. The good news is I'm now a free agent and I can come on as a consultant and save you a lot of money uh, by basically being an hourly consultant and, uh, and help you build a team. So it was fortunate timing. Again, that relationship, you know, focus of the role paid off for me because I was able to then kind of, you know, I, I was off for a little bit of time, but then, you know, soon after, as soon as they secured their funding, um, came in as employee number five after they basically rebuilt and helped them rebuild the whole company before oh, acquisition wow. by web method. So, so they, they brought you in as a full-time hire. No, it was a consultant. Consultant, so I was a, yeah, it was a consultant yeah. number five. So yeah, I was yeah. Uh, I stayed a consultant, um, mm-hmm. but I spent about twenty months with them, um, you know, building them up, and 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 in that that role was my first. You know, I wanted to kind of branch out from just technical recruiting because yeah. I knew I wanted to move into leadership, um, and so I was able to recruit for you know all the jobs and basically run recruiting for them, um, which positioned me for my next you know kind of big gig, which is moving over to Ticketmaster. Okay, all right, Ticketmaster. Then it combined your love of music too. I mean, then yeah, yeah. Take advantage. There is there is lobbying mean, to this day is probably the the most fun um, I've had in the job. I mean, the culture there is phenomenal. Um, the team was incredible. I, I was able to you know I came in as a recruiter. Uh, I came in as a senior recruiter, and six months in, my boss left, and she so she recommended the VP that I take over the team. Wow. Um, and I had an opportunity to do that. So it was my first time moving into a leadership, and yeah. I think I had you know seven jobs in seven years. Um, when I was there, but that's where I got to work under um, Beverly Carmichael, who was a former CHRO of Southwest Airlines and, you know, has definitely been a mentor uh, to this day um, of mine. And so a lot of my kind of formative experience uh, in the field was was forged there. That's amazing. So you're what, like 26, 27 when you started at Ticketmaster or went into leadership? Um, yeah, yeah, it's probably my mid 20s. Yeah, that's awesome. So wait, let's pause for a second. When you were a kid, did you want to be a movie star? Uh, I don't know about a star. I, I wanted to act like I did, uh, you know, I did some theater in, um, in high school. I did some, you know, theater, uh, you know, before that even. Um, so I, I, I did think that I wanted to get into acting. Um, interestingly enough, like I moved to LA and I was like, okay, I'm here now. I've got a job. Um, but I could, you know, I could 
audition. I could check things out. And I, and I had a few friends um, from Florida who also moved out to LA. And um, you know, everybody I knew who got into the industry uh, got became something else, right? It just it just too that changed them. And uh, and I was just like, do I really do I really want that? And I think I you know, probably my first few years in LA, I, I cheat on that. And I was like, well, but maybe I should. And you know, but I just never, I kind of never got around to pursuing it. And yeah. then I think it just ultimately I, I found a career in recruiting HR where I was like, this is, this is what I want to be doing. Yeah. That's, a, I mean, that's amazing that you went from like, I mean, it's not amazing. You're a people person. So I get the, even like being, it's not, I understand it's not like a movie star or celebrity, but like being out there. Yeah. You know, I think there's a, a real difference between back office and front office. Yeah. Right. It, it, it kind of like how I think better. I worked at restaurants forever. It was like front of house, back of house. Right. And you just, you kind of just like know where, not where you belong, but like what your strengths are. Like I never wanted to be a hostess, Yeah. but I was a really good server. It's a different kind of interaction. The hostess was like too quick for me. And it was like, first thing you see. Yeah. But the server was like, oh, I could build a relationship. Like I can get to know them. I can study the the behavior. I can anticipate when they want the ketchup because the fries are going to come in two minutes, you know. Right. Kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you, uh, well, let's go back this, back for one second. In terms of like takeaways from Beverly, since she was a huge mentor, like any takeaways that you can mention right now that you got at a really a formative time in your career, a young, a young young person um, that you're like, yeah, yeah. Uh, decades later, that still pans out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I think for her, you know, it's interesting. Like obviously everybody knows, you know, everybody in the U S I should say knows about Southwest airlines and their reputation. And that yeah. was one of the big reasons that we wanted to bring her on. Um, but working for her and just seeing how compassionate she was and how empathetic she was to the employee experience before we even use the term employee experience. Right. I mm-hmm. think now it's a, common vernacular for us, but then it wasn't. Uh, and she was really, it was like, when it came to a decision time, her, her first thought was like, how is this going to impact our employees? Um, how are the, how is this going to, what is this going to change for them? How are we going to bring them along um, to see the value in it for them in us doing this? And it was, you know, that came before what's the value of the business. And, um, you know, she was very business oriented. So it wasn't like, okay, we're gonna do this thing. That's going to be a, a drain on the business, but great for employees. Right. You have to have that balance. Yeah. Um, but, but being centered on the employee experience and the impact to employees, um, you know, that, that was, that was kind of my foundation. That's, that's the lens through which I saw decision-making in HR was done. And, and so to me, it was always like, okay, well, this is, you know, we, we, we kind of talked about the internal struggle within HR is like you know, the legacy stigma and, you know, the modern and it's a different function and there's that kind of push and pull. But I, I never worked in those legacy environments. I never had exposure to yeah. that. That wasn't my personal experience. And that wasn't the leaders, the leaders that I worked under didn't view things that way. And so I kind of carried that to this day. You know, I, I carry that with me. I think that, that part was really important. And the other was um, she wasn't afraid to stretch me and put me on things that uh, I probably had no business doing. Like we, uh, when we merged with Live Nation, about a month before that merger was announced, um, she promoted me to VP, basically kind of grooming me to be her successor and kind of broadened my scope to oversee performance and employee communications and a few other areas. And so um, I've been, you know, create this employee communications 
function from the ground up for about a month, right? Like learning all on the job. I, I was every day, I was like, okay, how do I do this? I need to figure this out. And then when the merger happened and they were like, uh, you know, Live Nation didn't have an internal comms team. And they saw on the org chart that Ticketmaster did. And it was me amongst like a bunch of other things I oversaw. And so they're like, okay, you're going to be the person developing the internal comm strategy for this multi-billion dollar merger. And I like, I've never go to Beverly's office be like, what? Like, I no, like I've never, I have no idea what I'm doing. She was like, you'll figure it out. And uh, she believed in me even when I didn't. And I think that that like that stretch environment for me, like it just gave me this, um, you know, this confidence yeah. in, in knowing that when I'm, when I face those scenarios where it's like, I haven't done this before, knowing that like I've, I've, orchestrated my career and my network and my connections and my relationships in a way that even if I don't have that knowledge, I can tap into it. Uh, and that, that really kind of planted the seeds towards my embrace of, of open source, you know, years later in my career. So I think that was really the foundation um, for a lot of the ways that I operate now. That's so, that's amazing that you had a mentor at that time in your life and that someone that believed in you and you know, I guess one of the questions I had written down before we talked, and I don't even know why I thought about this, but I was like, have you ever had, have you ever experienced the imposter syndrome? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It, I mean, that's, what, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still do. You know, I think that it's, uh, you know, you can, those things can coexist. Like, I think that, you know, some people look at imposter syndrome and be like, okay, if you have that, then maybe you lack confidence or you lack, and I think you could be supremely confident uh, and in your ability and, uh, but also at times be like, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm over my skis, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. analogy you want to throw out there. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of operating without a net I'm going hard on analogies right now, but it's yeah, like, you, 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 you know, you, you, but you believe in yourself, even though, you know, like you're probably like, you know, am I the right person to be doing X or to be saying Y or to be speaking at Z, um, you know, or writing a book, right? Or those kind of things. But then uh, I think you look back on that, um, you know, the, the confidence and that belief in yourself. And, and ultimately, those two things can coexist. I think even now, it's a balance where times where I'm just like, yes, I'm absolutely the right person to be doing this. And other times I'm just like, hmm. You know, I'm going to I'm going to do it because I think it's important that it's done. But, um, you know, I'm going to be I'm going to be learning and there's a good chance I'm going to fall on my face as I do that. I think I think that lack of fear of failure for me is is kind of the antidote to imposter syndrome where like I know I'm going to take some risks and I know I'm going to do some things that are not going to work out. And I'll learn from that. And I'm not going to you know beat myself up by that. I'll, I'll chalk it up as a, as a learning lesson and incorporate whatever I've learned in that into the next time I try something similar. So, um, yeah. How about you? I mean, do you, you, I think, I think people look at someone like you with your profile and they're probably like, Oh, you know, Claude's, Claude's got them on lock. Right. But I, I, I don't think that, you know, I don't think any of us do that's the reality. Right. No, no. I mean, it's, what, what, what could I possibly have on lock, you know, other than like being a good human and, believing that we all deserve a fair chance and it, you know, believing like connections make the world go round and yeah. why not try to make someone stay better? Like that's it. Everything else is, is I tried. Everything else is like, I got it. I think I got a tool for this. I think I got a skill set for this. If I don't, I'm going to ask someone or I'm going to give it a shot. And most often I have a safety net, you know, most often, certainly in my life now, but I was thinking about 
so yes, to answer your question, yeah, what do you what do you have on lock other than like being a good human, right? That that I think is I'll take that. If there's one thing that you could have on lock and it's that, like I think I think you're doing pretty well. So yeah, me yeah, me too, me too. Um, I was thinking about your as I, you were talking about like, all right, well, you know, I'll follow my face and then I'll just do it again or whatever. And, you know, you, one can't talk to you without looking at the skateboards. And I'm thinking about, you know, what it must be like to first try, you know, your first half pipe, like go down that and like, or whatever it's called, a fakie or 360 or I don't know. I don't know the terms. Anymore. No, you had it. I was your air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but like if, I mean, that, it, it feels like, not to go into skate culture that heavy because I, I I'm out of my league there, but that's what the half pipe is for. You're practicing, yeah, and you're practicing, and then you get it, and then you keep doing it, and then you do another trick. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. You know, you're gonna fail a lot before you get it right. Anytime you try a new trick, I, what, what's so interesting is um, when we when Ambrosia and I first launched launched HR Open Source, we we're trying to find resources to help us convey what open source was to people who had never heard the term before. And we came across this video um, that I actually, I, I referenced the other day. It's about open source and they use Lego to demonstrate like how open source works. And one of the analogies they use is skateboarding. And they said in the, in the culture of skateboarding, um, you know, unless you're in, in an actual contest, but for most part, you know, you're competing with yourself. So it's, it's more of an individualistic support, but, everybody is supportive of everybody else. Like if you're trying to learn how to nail a kickflip, everybody's gonna tell you, hey, this is how I do it. Like, hey, when I was at your stage before I got it, I always got hung up on this part. So maybe when I try doing this, I actually got a little bit more easier. Maybe, you know, you've got to flick your heel a little bit later in the process, but everybody rallies around everybody else. Like nobody is like, hey, if you learn how to do a kickflip, then it diminishes my kickflip. Right. You know, right. it's all about building each other up. And it's just like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't connect those dots uh, that, you know, cause of course, you know, and I grew up as a, you know, skate kid in Florida. I was like, yeah, but if you do an open source HR, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think looking back now, I'm just like, actually, you know what that was like coming up in that world where it was like um, very supportive and everybody wanted to, you know, nobody wanted to be proprietary about their tricks. Yeah. their approaches they wanted to help each other up because you 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 elevate everybody together and i think in a weird way like that that ethos came over and translated over to how i look at the field of hr um and and kind of why i'm so passionate about open source projects yeah i, I love that analogy i'm a sucker for analogies so like <laughs> and metaphors but that's so true like I, and i i did a post the other day on linkedin which was about um you know, what's good for, what's good for me is good for you. And what's good for you is good for me. And I, I related it to the time in which I um, ran a surfing company and how I was, mm-hmm. you know, be teaching beginners out in um, Pacifica or Santa Cruz. And sometimes, you know, we'd be slightly into like an intermediate break. Yeah. And the locals would just come down and just be like, bah, 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 bah. and yeah. I was always like, by the way, it was never because it was about safety. That's not the feeling I got as the instructor. Like, hey, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to run that person over. It was more like your people are, are in my break. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking to myself, it's so conducive of, of my personality. Like, there's so much water to go around. Like, yeah. there will be another wave. And that's, and that's me. And I understand, like, for, you know, for pros or for people, they're just like, no, I want that wave. 
and your people right. are in my way. And it really didn't jive with my, you know, my personality of like, there will, there's always enough to go around, which is very open source also. And then plus yeah. you're in a, you're in a freaking ocean. I'm like, <laughs> the wind will blow and the swell <laughs> will rise. Now it might be a flat day, so that might suck, but you know what I mean? Um, so anyway, I'm, I love, I love analogies and especially like sports analogies or it, it, it just makes a lot of sense because even though skating to your point, surfing, it's party of one, you're out there for the most part, there is a posse. Yeah. There are people cheering you on. And that's what I love about team. And that's, yeah. that's, that's the, I think the, the whole reason that team building has been so important to me my entire life is because it's not ever about that one person shining. It's about everyone shining. Yeah. And it yeah, never, absolutely. you know, I, I love that. Yeah. Anyway, it just made me think about that. Um, all right, let's go. I, I want to go more into like HR and um, so, and kind of like why you care so much and why, why would you, I, I get open source, but like, well, I, so walk, walk me through this. Like, what is the biggest challenge that any CHRO today, CHO, chief people officer, whatever you want to call it, what do you think the biggest challenge is now? And what do you think we can do to help soothe and solve those challenges? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a hard job. It's, it's such a hard job. It's always been a hard job. But now, today, in this world that we're living in, uh, that we're kind of struggling our way through from time to time, it's so difficult. Like you have to have, and, I, and I've, I've you know, said it many times, you know, next to the CEO, the CHRO is the more, most difficult job in the C-suite. And, and I say that because, you know, in the past, you really needed to have HR acumen. Um, and that was, you know, kind of table stakes. And most people, most CHROs rose up through within the field. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at the field now, I mean, obviously we've had this conversation about your, your own path yeah. um, to the field. People are moving into that role from other areas of the business because they have that business acumen um, that is just, it's, it's essential because you're, you have to understand the financials of the business. You have to understand a go to market strategy. You have to understand, uh, you know, market positioning, strategic roadmap. You have to design a custom people strategy that moves all of those things forward. You're overseeing and supporting the most volatile asset that the business has, which is their people. And our people have been through a lot in, uh, in the past year. And so I think, um, you know, it, it's an incredibly difficult position. I think, where where we lack and probably what, and this is you know an, an unintended segue to kind of some of what I've been working on lately is like most of the people in the CHRO role or the CPO role right now, especially those that have that have done that a couple times over, um, a they're burned out. Most HR leaders are burned out at this moment in time based on everything we've been through. Um, but they're burned out. They're tired. Um, they're massively in demand because companies are, are realizing the value of HR now. And so they want to really build these modern teams. And not all uh, HR leaders are equipped to run those types of teams. So they're massively in demand. Um, and we don't really do a good job of developing kind of that next level talent to become CPOs and CHOs that can operate at that level. And so I think that's a real gap. I think if you, you know, as I wrote the book and I kind of surveyed and obviously in writing the book, did a lot of time, uh, you know, looking at the landscape of like, how are we, how are we developing our, our next generation of HR leaders and CPOs? And there are so many gaps 
in terms of how we're doing that. And so part of what, you know, redefining HR has evolved into now is this, you know, broader accelerator platform where kind of my aim in that is helping develop the next generation of people leaders and HR leaders and giving them, you know, the network they need to thrive because you can't be as successful as, you know, you know, and any of you, you know, that network is probably the most important asset you have, uh, especially getting through some of the difficult times that we've had to get through over the last year. Um, you know, intangible skills like, you know, writing uh, and communication and being able to kind of put together a business case and, and articulate and defend ideas. Um, you know, th- those sorts of things, executive brand building, understanding uh, PL, like those, those sorts of things, which are most of our training and development has been in functional areas, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to know recruiting, you've got to know employee experience, talent management, company bends, um, but we're not, you know, we're not supporting them beyond that. And so I think that that's really the biggest opportunity if we can find ways. And, and again, like, because it's an area where I've been spending a lot of time thinking kind of what I'm focused building now with the accelerators, I, I want to build that platform that connects the next generation of HR leaders uh, and in some ways connects them into the current generation of HR leaders. So there's that cross, you know, development they can learn from each other, um, but also has them, you know, better supported to move into those roles, but more importantly, thrive once they're in those roles. Um, Because I think that that's just a, it's an underserved, um, you know, aspect of the field right now. Yeah. I love everything you said. And I'm like shaking, I'm shaking my head. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And as I think about, how do I and how do we ensure that the the people, the VPs and the directors today are set up for success? It it actually leads me to how important it is right now to train our managers. Like I'm yeah. I'm correlating that. Obviously, I'm in it, as you know. Yeah. So it's like my mind is thinking about like what am I doing today to also develop our brand new managers into more experienced managers with tenure and then obviously into like leadership and senior leadership positions because that first rung, that first second rung of managers, you need to get that right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also like, you know, the, the, the progressions aren't linear anymore. Yeah. I know. Right. I, I think, you know, I, you know, I've been doing this for a long while. Like when I came up, it was, everything was linear. You know, I came in as an associate now I'm base level, now I'm senior, now yeah. I'm manager. And it was just like, we, we, everything was focused around a ladder and now it's a lattice and more where, you know, you have people, even maybe I come in as a, a recruiter, then I become a business partner, then I become a director specialist, you know, or maybe I'm coming from marketing, you know, or maybe yeah. I'm coming from data science, you know, or, yeah. or field. and so I think to me, it's one of the more exciting aspects of HR today is that, you know, it, historically we were a pretty insular field right people came in they spent their whole career in hr now we've got people like you coming in we've got people from all different disciplines and areas of the business bringing that expertise bringing that fresh way of thinking bringing that new approach of you know how do we solve these problems in a way that you know based on my background in x i'm looking at it differently than you based on your you know background all in hr and that's so good for us and the field um and i think it's going to just continue to accelerate our our evolution and our ability to kind of get more and more practitioners operating at that elite level. Yeah, I agree. And also I think the more exposure we could give that, the level that you're talking about uh, to the C-suite or to whomever it is, the key decision makers, the better, just to, yeah. to fully understand like vision, strategy and vision from the top, like to really understand that. And then, because at the end of the day, 
you're going to be executing on that. But yeah. it's good to kind of get into those rooms to hear it from the top, to hear some of that planning happen. And one of the things that you were mentioning is so true. Like, I mean, you know, I've been in the, I've been in the role for five years. Mm. Uh, we had like HR a little bit, like little mini prior, <laughs> like we had you know, maybe two recruiters and a, a generalist and a, you know, payroll benefits person probably. And then, and then me, right. Doesn't come from HR. Right. But as I hired people, I had, so I, I actually started from within and they were project managers, community managers, client service people. And they had been at Boehner for at least, you know, three years, like longer than me even. Yeah. And so they understood, you know, Gary always talks about like the religion of Boehner media, the, 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 the DNA. And they understood like what, what do we believe in hands down? Like we, we fundamentally believe in taking care of our people. We are a high touch culture. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And then finally, you know, finally I was like, okay, that's cool. We got all of that covered. Now I need to learn (laughs) (laughs) and I need to learn a lot. So then I was able to bring in people that have been doing it, you know, for centuries who have really, I think, Give, I, I call, for example, Jen on, on our team, who's an SVP, like she's the science. She brings the science. I bring the heart. You need yeah. both. I mean, you certainly need both. And yeah. there's not a day that goes by that I don't, I don't, I, I need advice from her on like how to handle the situation or vice versa. So Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, you said something too, in kind of your description, which, uh, which stood out to me, which is community. Uh, and I think as I look at the role of HR now, and actually uh, even going back, you know, a couple of years ago, I was at uh, LinkedIn Talent Connect and um, Patagonia CHRO, Dean Carter was one of the keynotes. Oh, great. Uh, and yeah, he's phenomenal. And, and he, he was like, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not the CHRO, I'm the chief community officer. Mm. And I had him on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago and I, and I was asking about that. I was like, tell me more about that. Because when you said that, I, I just stood up at attention and I'm like, yes, like, yes, you are. But yeah, but, but specifically, I want to know, like, in the way that you're seeing it, how do you define it? How does it, how does it touch? And he just, you know, talked about the different internal ecosystems within the company and his role in supporting all of them. And they need different things at different times. Um, but I just thought that that, you know, as we think about our role is not necessarily supporting employees or certainly not human capital, you know, it's, it's community. How are we building and fostering and nurturing community within organizations? And it's just, it's a different way of kind of looking at what we do in HR. And it was just, to me, it was, it was, it was a simple comment, but it struck me in a very profound way. Um, so that even hearing you kind of mention community, I love hearing that from HR leaders because I think that's such a big part of what we do and how like, the best of us see our jobs. Yeah, I love that. First of all, I love that you you caught that because it's really important. It is the collective, yeah. it's the community. We're, we're, it's a village, right? We're nothing without that. And then Dean, like I just want to give massive props to Dean. When I, when I walked into the CHO role, knowing nothing, right? I, I reached out to two people. I reached out to Dean, mm-hmm. cold call. Yeah. Like, I love Patagonia. I read, you know, let my people surf. I got the, I got the ethos and I was like, I got to talk to this guy. He obviously is like working at a, a company that I would work at and he's doing it well. And then I worked, I uh, reached out to Pat Walters who had just left LinkedIn. Yeah. But I was like, okay, I love what she's built at LinkedIn. Let me call her. 
didn't know what to ask these people. I really didn't. <laughs> Knowing that I knew nothing. I didn't even know some of the terminology, but both of them gave me an enormous amount of time. And, uh, and I just, I'm so glad you brought, brought Dean up because like, that's exactly what it's about. I think paying it back, paying it forward, paying it back. Yeah. Um, and as you say, you know, it's the, the network is so important and it is all about like, we, we, we started talking about relationships in the beginning here, like being a recruiter and, you know, knowing how to read people and how to you know, be in service of and all of that. And, and I love that you're, you want to facilitate the growth of, of these people that will be stepping into these leadership roles by introducing them to us. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's so like, I think, uh, and I learned a lot as we scaled and grew HR open source about building community, you know, like some, some things like great things. And I want to bring those in and some things like, Oh, we, we missed on X, you know, or we missed on Y and, I want, and both of those lessons are equally valuable. Um, but for me, it's like community is the heart of everything that I do. Whether it's the open source projects, the, you know, the podcast, the book, I mean, all of it has a community foundation. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm, I feel fortunate that I'm in the position that I'm in now where I can kind of build this new, uh, new community, make new connections, leverage, you know, my, my superpower has always been, you know, building networks and kind of, you know, connecting dots for different people. And so now I can build something around that where I can connect people to each other and just make it much more easier to access, um, you know, kinship and ideas and support uh, and, uh, and inspiration. So that, uh, that, you know, what a what a you know pleasure to be in a, in a place like that. It's uh, it's very fortunate. Yeah, well, you I mean you built it, you built it, and we're and we and we will come right, which is the which is it. You know, the um, what is what does the phrase emotional optimism mean to you? When you hear I those think, words, yeah, you know, to me, I think uh, optimism uh, can be a choice, right? I think. Um, Optimism, you know, for some people, it comes very naturally to them, and that's just how they're wired. For some people, they have to work to be a bit more of an optimist. But I think when you look at emotional optimism, you know, your your default is that um, assuming good intent, um, assuming that people are going to, you know, make the right decisions, they're going to do good by their people, they're going to be supportive. Um, uh, it it opens you up to disappointment. From time to time, because not everybody operates that way, and uh, because you assume good intent, sometimes you know that that can put you in a bad spot. Um, but I think generally, it, it's having a uh, you know you can boil it down. But we're, we're having analogies in this chat, so you know glass is half full. Um, but it is uh, it, it's a belief in the good in people. It's a belief in um, in, in hum humanity and human nature, and that uh, and that you know trust that positivity is going to be more of a default um, for people than, um, than, than mistrust or, uh, or, or people who might want to, you know, do harm or, uh, or look out for themselves only. The th thank you for that. The things that you said in terms of what you believe emotional optimism is all about, I think that is what the world of HR is about. Yeah. I really do. I think that one of the things that was missing and i hope that it comes in now is more trust of people yeah you know more proactive trust of people less in defense of the company 
you know, I mean, look, I, there's been no shortage of, uh, of high profile cases and incidents uh, recently where employees, um, you know, felt many times rightfully so that HR didn't have their back. Yeah. And I think, you know, a, a, HR is in this, you know, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, gloss over the fact that, you know, at, at times we are in difficult roles where we are in service of the company and we're yeah. also in service to the employee. And I think that, uh, you know, what I don't agree with is that that, uh, that choice is, uh, is absolutely binary. Just going right? to say that. Yeah. And Just I, I think that, that that is, right? Like some people are like, okay, well, clearly you, you work on behalf of the company. So you're always going to have that. Like, I think, I think great HR leaders, it's not easy and I'm not going to portray that it is, but I think great HR leaders know what that balance is and can support and advocate for both constituents and have the relationships with their C-level peers where they can push back. Uh, if maybe there's a business decision that uh, is gaining momentum and it's going to adversely impact the employee is somebody that can say, hey, you know what, I know this is probably the right thing for the business, but it's going to be damaging to our DNA and our culture. And maybe there's a different way we can think about this that doesn't have that same impact on our employees. So again, like, you know, this is you know, the world you live in. It's being able to, I, I don't, I think it's a false choice to say that you have to be one or the other. I think it, it takes effort and finesse and constant work and trust and relationship building. Uh, but I think you can and really must in today's day and age be somebody that can, that can operate at both levels. Yeah. Finesse is such a good word for it. It does. It takes going back to skating, you know, at some point when you get to be a great skater and you can do that kickflip, it looks there is finesse to it. It looks yeah. phenomenal, you know, and, uh, or, or, you know, I'm a tennis player and like how many, how many forehands cross court and down the line do you have to hit until it is literally, you know, a, a Nadal or Federer shot, <laughs> like a, a zillion in one, yeah. but then you get it and you're like, Oh yeah. I, okay. I know what that feels like. Let's, yeah. let's rework the situation so that we can possibly find that type of what's good for you is good for me type of thing, even yeah. if that means, you know, on an exit, yeah, you know, so many things we could talk forever and ever and ever. <laughs> and I just, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate the work you do. I appreciate the open source that you put out as we sent everyone home March 11th last year and how many documents you had up there that I personally read and digested and shared out. And that was enormous as we were all in massive triage and there was no playbook, you actually created some kind of raft for so many of us to grab onto. So I just really wanted to thank you for that. Yeah, well, that's um, that's kind of you. And I, I appreciate that. And I was, um, it was a privilege to be in a position to do that, right? So I, um, yeah, I, I, I thank you. And I'm just, uh, I, I'm glad I was able to get, it's like that, the whole network effect. I even go back to like the, the Beverly days, uh, early in my career. I know, I was like, you know, I, I was like, you know, this is a, a unique position and I, I'm in a unique position to be able to support. And so, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was an honor to be able to, to do that and, uh, and help people. And, and again, like mutual admiration society, but, uh, I think you, you know, your, your, your voice, your ability to just take such a, a principle and an upfront, um, stance on, compassion and empathy and leadership in the field. Um, I've, I've admired that tremendously and uh, continue to this day. So we'll, uh, uh, we always run out of time when we talk. So we'll have, to, we'll have to find more jam we sessions. And hopefully we'll do, it, uh, we'll do it live in New York again when that is uh, safe. I can't wait. Also, congrats, bestseller, 
You rock. This is awesome. I know that people will flock to Amazon to find this book, Redefining HR. And um, where would you like people to find you? Um, you know, the hub for everything I'm doing right now is uh, redefininghr.com. So right. you can go there, find the book, podcast, accelerator, newsletter, community. I feel like I'm like, uh, like 10 jobs right now, but uh, maybe all, all the, you know, the, that, that website is the nucleus for all the different um, components of the accelerator. All right. Amazing. I can't wait to see you in person. And thank you so much for your time and what you do. Yeah. Thank you, Claude. Thanks for having me on. And I uh, can't wait as well. Stay safe. You too. Bye, Lars. See ya.